Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. Joined today by the full panel, we have Kathy Fecky, James Daynard, Henry Washington, and Jamil Damji joining us. And all four of you just got back from what looked like a very fun party that I'm very sad to miss to celebrate Jamil. Jamil, congratulations. Can you tell everyone what you were uh, celebrating? Absolutely. Thank you for the shout out. We had the premiere of season two of Triple Digit Flip, and my brothers and sisters were all in attendance. Other than you, Dave, we missed you, but um, we had you there in spirit. It was a phenomenal premiere, super fun show, and uh, the network executives came out. We had the Outlaws from Tupac and the Outlaws performance, like a childhood heroes of mine, and just got to live up a night that I'll never forget. It was super fun. That's awesome, man. Well, congratulations. It's a great show, and uh, you d definitely deserve to to celebrate all of your success there. Thank you, bro. Henry, what was the most compromising thing you saw or learned about Jamil during during the party? <laughs> great question. Well, it's, what's funny is when I showed up, he made me sign an NDA, so I can't really <laughs> dis disclose what I did or didn't see. So uh, all I can say is that... Um, it was a night definitely to remember. And in all seriousness, what I love about hanging out with Jamil is that his like warm, inviting 
and comforting nature is reflected in everybody that's around him. And so like we're in a room full of hundreds of people and everybody is just having a good time, sharing information with each other, loving on each other. And uh, to be able to create a community like that is not only a testament uh, to his success, but a testament to him as a person. So I thank you for letting me be there. Thank you, man. Wow. Awesome. Oh. Kathy, why do you have something mean to say? I was going to say, no, no, I agree <laughs> so much. Um, it, they, Jamil and Pace are changing so many lives that the, the room was just full of hope and happiness and optimism of people who are learning how to invest and how to change their lives and their future that way. And there, there was just so much love in the room. And I got to see Jamil do some um, attempts at breakdancing, maybe. <laughs> was- uh, you mean breaknecking? <laughs> breaknecking. <laughs> there was a really cool... There was a really cool full circle moment for me. I had posted a video about it, I, I think, yesterday. But a guy came up to me who recognized me and said that um, he saw one of my videos about a challenge I was having a long time ago and uh, when I just started investing. And me talking about that challenging experience changed his life, his perspective. And he knew at that point he was going to be successful. And so he then ended up connecting with Pace's group and uh, while his mom was battling stage four cancer, he was able to go from where he was to make $90,000 in a year. And it was just cool to know that like something that I said sparked this guy to get started. He then works with Pace. I didn't know Pace at the time. He probably started to connect with me. And then now we're all in the same room together at the same time seeing his, you know, his success. And so that's the impact that sharing this information about real estate can have on people and the world is smaller than we think it is. Man, that's awesome. awesome. Wow. That's super cool. And congrats on the community that you've created there, Jamil. Thank you, man. It's been it's been a phenomenal experience, and it's just getting started. I uh, I I see this as our life pursuit, and I'm excited to do this until they tell me to stop. Amen. I hope you do. The parties are fun. <laughs> <laughs> James is like, yeah, community, whatever. I don't know. Let's have more parties. <laughs> I mean, James had one of the best outfits on ever. It was like we did a '90s hip hop theme because it was so good. I will say the community I, is is awesome. I lost my credit card in the bathroom somehow, and someone had tracked me down somehow and handed me the card. I literally had just canceled it. It was he's like he's like James. He's like I got your credit card. And I was like oh wow. It was wow. Talk about a good community. I just bought a boat on it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I need it for the boat repairs. Oh, that's so cool. All right. Well, I'm glad you guys had such a good time. Hopefully I could be there for next year. Uh, Let's get into today's show. We're going to be doing uh, one of our, I guess, repeat formats now, which is a a correspondence show where we can uh, each each one of our panelists will bring a story that they are finding interesting, that they think are important for our listeners to pay attention to. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. 
Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. All right, Jamil, you're the man of the hour. So let's start with you. What story did you bring for us today? Well, you know, I wanted to look at this from a slightly different angle and perspective because, you know, as we have seen the real estate market shift and as investors, you know, we all have a specific point of view and our, our point of views differ for sure, but we're really looking at it from like the bottom line of our perspective, right? Are we, are we, you know, going to be paying more, more money for our houses is our, you know, are we going to be able to cash flow? Is the burst still working? There's so many different things, you know, is real estate going to correct overcorrect? There's, there's just a lot of tension and things that we, as investors care about and think about and talk about. Yesterday, however, I'm doing a pop-up meetup at my office and a lady who follows me on YouTube comes in and, and gives me a big hug and says, I just want you to know that I've been watching you on YouTube and I, I was able to do my first deal. It was a small deal. I made $2,000 and it allowed me to you know sustain life for a little while longer. I'm living in my car and I was like, hold on a second, what? You came to a meetup and you've done your first deal, you made 2000 bucks, but you live in your car. And she said, yeah, I live in my car. You know, housing is just way too expensive and I can't figure it out. I can't figure this out. And, you know, right there, I just had this moment where I thought that this perspective is so important to understand and, and at least talk about. And so 
lo and behold, I'm you know looking at articles and I see an article by AZ Big Media and it's titled "Why Experts in Arizona Say the Growing Housing Crisis or the Growing the Housing Crisis is a Growing Cancer." And I needed to understand what this is talking about. And so, you know, again, we're looking at this from the different angle, a different perspective. And homelessness here in Phoenix, Arizona has has become a massive, massive problem, right? We've got tent cities popping up all over the spots. There's, you know, in every neighborhood you go, there's there's homelessness. And it's and it's just like regular people, right? These aren't there's it's not just people with mental illness or addictions that you're seeing where you're like, you know, I understand there's a, a lot of greater social problem or a greater uh, mental or health problem here that's causing some of this uh, difficulty. But this is like moms, dads, just families and, and just regular folks having hardship, not being able to pay rent. And as I see this and I think, OK, we're walking into or we're in the middle of a, a correction and, and housing pricing. Is there any way that this gets better for the little guy? And as I read the article, I see it's not. It's not getting any better for the little guy because what happens is right now, especially as we see rates increasing and demand slowing, days on market in Arizona or Phoenix especially is still 33 days. 33 days on market, which means that there's still demand, right? There's still demand. People are still buying. Yes, prices are depressing. We have we're already at like over 10% correction in price, but that has not stopped trading. That has not stopped investors from buying, buy and hold investors from buying, large hedge funds and private equity groups from buying. That has not stopped mon pa landlords from buying. We're just getting everything cheaper right now. That's it. And because we're getting everything cheaper, when you have you know people looking at opportunities now because now you've got the little guy who can come in and actually purchase a home albeit they can purchase a lot less home than they could have purchased say six months ago but now they're at the table and they're and they're they're trying and their offer even if even though it's probably significantly higher than my offer my offers cash my offer is safe my offer closes and it, and it's guaranteed and i'm still winning i'm still winning at the negotiation table even though i'm coming in significantly lower and that is creating more of a situation it's creating more of a homeless situation it's creating more it's 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 still sucking inventory away and rents are not following the housing situation right pricing right now is correcting 10% or greater in phoenix arizona rents have not changed they're still going up and so it's that whole is there a trickle down here? Is there is there a reprieve for the little guy? And and I'm and I need to take the perspective because again, we all as a community of people, investors, we are all in this together. And there is a greater conversation that we need to have because what they're proposing in this article is legislation. They're proposing that there is no fair market situation here. The market is not going to correct itself. The market is not going to allow opportunity for smaller people or uh, the retail buyer to come in and participate. It won't because we don't play by the same rules because what that buyer has to qualify for, uh, show for income, show for credit, I never have to do that. I don't have to play by those rules because I come in with cash and I'm going to best them every single time. 
And so they're proposing legislation. They're proposing legislation on rent control. They're proposing on le- legislation on how many houses a specific LLC or a corporation can buy. And they're really wanting to create, in my opinion, some regulations that are going to take the fair market or the, you know, the, the, nation, the, the natural capitalistic market conditions that we all or many people believe need to be there. Uh, off the table. And when you see, you know, Arizona has flipped from a red state to a blue state. It's, you know, we, we've all seen it happen. I, I believe that legislation like this is going to become the conversation. And so I want to talk about it. I want to, I want to hear perspectives. I want to understand what, you know, what do we think as investors about this? What about the perspective of the lady who came to my meetup, who is living in her car right now, who is participating in real estate and doing deals and, and, and is a part of maybe the problem. So, you know, that's, that's the, that's the article. That's the thought. I would love to, I would love to comment on that, Jamil. Um, I remember in the seventies. Okay. I know many of you were not born, but I was young, very young. And we were sitting at the dinner table and it was in 1971 when uh, Nixon took us off the gold standard. And my father said, this is going to be really bad. This is going to create separation between the haves and the have-nots because uh, this will allow more creation of money without anything to tie it to, which at the time had been gold. And we know that politicians like to spend money. So inflation and the printing of money is a silent tax. It's a tax that people don't understand and don't know about. And that tax is most felt by those who have less money because they have a finite budget. And when things cost more, they, you know, there's no room for that. So printing money and inflation hurts the the lower class and creates more of 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 a lower income class because more money is going to pay for goods because more money is being printed instead of taxing people. So this is, it always falls, the the culprit always falls on the investor or often on the investor. And what, in my opinion, what needs to be regulated, which may never be regulated, is the, the Federal Reserve that creates that money and politicians who want that money to stay in office because they keep offering things. So I, I just, I have a very strong opinion on this. It always falls on the landlords. But if you look at it this way, if you're throwing trillions of dollars out of a helicopter, let's say, and the people who pick up those dollars because they're fast at getting them or they're doing something with them, those are the ones that get blamed when what they've really done is just picked up the dollars that were thrown out. Uh, So the regulation is going to come. And that's what my story is about. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But I do hope that people really look at the systemic issues versus the bad, naughty investors. Because at the end of the day, rentals are very important too. If we look back to the 70s, again, when we're talking about this, homeownership rate was much lower. It was it was 63% in the, in the 60s. It was 66% homeownership in the 70s. Today, it's, it's about uh, 60, it's around 
it's higher. It's about 65%. Right 66%. Yeah. It's gone up the last two quarters just to, for everyone says that it's returning to a renter nation. Yeah. More people are owning homes. It's not that different. Um, it's better than the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And of course, when regulation came in to stimulate um, housing and get more people buying, that's when things went crazy with more regulation because, of course, we know that uh, that's when loans got too easy. And it became too easy to buy a home. Homeownership isn't for everybody. But but people, all people do need a home unless they like to live in their car, um, which some people do. I've got nephews who love living in their vans. That's that's their choice. Uh, but if you don't, you know, otherwise, if you want a home, um, you're either going to rent it or you're going to own it. And there has been typically 30 to 40% of people who choose to rent for whatever reason or who are renting. So again, I, I know that regulation is coming. But I do hope that we're able to get the message out there of what the real problem is. So you're talking about treating the disease and instead of blaming the symptoms. Yeah, the disease is money printing. And where does that money go? And when people really dive in and look where that money goes, I think they will probably be more upset than with a bunch of institutional investors providing rental homes. Yeah. And to piggyback on Kathy, you know, I'm, I'm in the Seattle market where there is a lot of regulation that has been passed over the last three to four years. And, and one thing about the news articles is I will say they start hyping up the regulation a little bit more than what it actually is. But the issue is if it, it becomes this like fight investors versus politicians and it doesn't need to be a fight. It should be a common solution. There is so many different things that could happen that could make uh, homes more affordable. You could subsidize the builders, the investors on their construction costs. You could get them th their permits quicker. Like if, if, if the city came to me and said, Hey, look, we want you to cap on rent, but we're going to, we're going to forgive you all, you know, maybe uh, some tax relief, some utility relief, and we're going to give you your permits in two weeks. That would be a negotiation that, that's a fair trade at that point. But the, the issues there is a lot of times is the cities don't, they, they, they kind of put up roadblocks all the way through with these investors, the permitting, the, the construction costs, the fees. You know, we, like we got a new um, tax that was put on us two years ago. We call it the developer tax in Seattle, where they charge us roughly two to three dollars per square foot on any permit that we're pulling for new construction. Then that's supposed to be going back into the community to help out. The problem is it never makes it to that community. And then all that did wasn't affect us as developers. That just meant we have to pay less now. It just affected this seller that's trying to sell their property and then move into another, you know, whether it's on their next phase of their life. And so I, I wish there was more community and brainstorming because there's so many different solutions out there that would that could keep actually homes more affordable. I mean, we saw construction costs went up by 20, 30 35% over the last 20, 24 months. The replacement costs are really high. If you can get those costs down, you can charge less for rent. And, and, and hopefully at some point in the, in the future, people will come up with solutions that help everybody because that's how you fix the issue. You don't overcorrect here and overcorrect here. Yeah, I want to I want to piggyback on that because James is making a phenomenal point. I think we've gotten too comfortable in this country of playing this us versus them mentality, right? There's there's the right and the left, the Democrats, the Republicans, the conservatives, the liberals, the landlords, and the investors versus the regular guy. And James is 100% right. Us versus them doesn't solve the problems, right? And I think when you look at this legislation, you have to understand what is the motive behind it. 
not what they're saying the motive is because they're saying the motive is let's help the little guy but that's not the motive the motive is i want to do the things that my party thinks is good so that i get more votes reelected can continue to live the life and do the things that i want to do if the true reason is to solve the problem then it has to be together nothing gets solved with us versus them things truly get fixed the wound truly starts to heal when we work together. I had the exact same conversation uh, that James is talking about. I spoke at an event about affordable housing, right? And, you know, they invited me because I'm the dirty landlord, right? And they wanted to talk about affordable housing. And that's exactly what I said to them is I do have property that I can and will take less rent on, but I still have to pay for that. And so if we can work with the city and come up with a way for the city to say, hey, if you can charge less rent for these types of properties, we can do this for you. If we can go and then we work with the builders and do the same thing and say, hey, if you will build this type of property in this neighborhoods, we can give you these types of breaks or credits or right so that everybody is doing something that helps each other out. And then we create. We, we, we heal the wound that way. We're not just, we're not just treating the symptoms just like it, it's, and it's gotta be that way with, with everything that we're facing as a country right now, we've got to stop fighting each other. We've got to stop talking about, well, this person or this group of people is bad. And my group of people is right. It's not about that, right? We're all on this planet together, sharing these resources that we have, and we all want to live the best lives that we possibly can. And so the only way that happens is if we start to have some empathy to other situations. That's why I love that Jamil brought this story up. He brought the story up. He's on the opposite side. He's on the investor side, but he has empathy and understanding for what the regular person is going through. And he's able to listen to what their struggles are. And so now maybe on a small scale, you and Hurricanes come to some sort of way to improve each other's lives, right? But without each of you being willing to understand where the other person is coming from, what the other person has to deal with, right? And then being able to talk about that in a way that it's constructive and not combative, you get to real solutions. And I just don't, we've got to understand that for any of this to change, landlords, uh, cities, and cities and municipalities and local governments and, and national governments all need to sit down and try to figure out what can we all do collectively to fix the problem? Not what can I do on my side that my people like. Amen. Yeah, man. Well, well said. Well, well, all of you, um, very good, very good points. And Jamil agree. Thank you for bringing up this important topic. It's a, it's a really, um, pressing issue right now. It sounds like we all sort of agree that this is a problem, right? Like affordability, I think, in terms of housing is at like a 40 year low. Um, it's, it's hardest, it's the hardest time since the eighties for people to buy a home. So even though, as Kathy said, home ownership has is up and is going up, that is sort of under threat. If we remain at these levels of affordability, rent is going up. Um, and this is just both like a moral and societal economic imperative to fix. Like in my opinion, at least I think like to Jamil, to your point, like, Something is wrong if people are hustling and working hard and they're living out of their car like that. That's that's a problem. Um, but to your point, um, we also need to, like, consider, like, what 
solutions actually work. Um, I actually just listened to a really good podcast on uh, Freakonomics. I don't know if you guys listen to this. Yeah, great. I love that podcast. It's great. Yeah, about rent control. I really recommend anyone listen to it. It's like a really good, well-balanced, um, unbiased perspective on what happens with rent control. And a lot of the times it doesn't work. It actually leads to higher rent. And I, I won't get into the details with that there, but I think it's really important in solving this issue to not just be reactionary and look into say like, okay, let's cap rent. It makes sense on a logical level, but evidence-based evidence-wise, it doesn't actually do what anyone really wants it to. So I'm curious, Kathy, you mentioned that your story was about some regulation that is potentially coming. I don't know if it's on a national level in California, but can you tell us a little bit more about like what some of the proposed regulations are to sort of try to address this issue? Yeah, it's three Democrats from California who just came out with a new House bill um, in October. It's called Stop Wall Street Landlords Act. And uh, this is an article from from Vox. It is called, if you want to look it up, uh, Democrats Eye New Legislation to Reign in Wall Street Landlords. Uh, I remember in in 2020, 12, right before Warren Buffett said, oh, if I could buy a few hundred thousand homes, I would. Uh, That's when Wall Street did jump in because, you know, they listened to what he says and they did find a way to manage the properties and jump in. And it was right around that time that, of course, prices were so low and interest rates were pretty low. And I told all of my friends, you have got to buy something right now. Anybody in California who didn't own real estate at that time, I was like, do it now uh, because this is going to be your chance. Well, they tried. And because they had FHA loans and um, any kind of loans, they were bid out. It changed like this. It was in a matter of weeks. Warren Buffett said his thing. Funds jumped in. I mean, and it was crazy. So my my friends and family who were making offers with loans were losing out every time because what seller is going to want to sell to a first-time buyer with an FHA loan that may or may not close when they could get a cash offer from uh, a Wall Street firm for much more, you know? Um, so there's always two sides or three sides or four sides to any story when you, when, it, when you talk about regulation. Personally, back then, I would have loved to see some regulation back then because it was an incredible time for homeowners to be able to lock in low home prices, but they couldn't get, you know, they couldn't compete. That would have been a great time to maybe do something where you get 30 days, you know, to see if you're for a first time buyer, uh, to see if your loan closes for what the institutional investor would pay. So the seller is still going to get the deal. The investor can be on the sidelines. If the first time home buyer doesn't close, um, then the investor can come in. I mean, some kind of regulation I really think would have been nice because I now see my friends 10 years later who never were able to get into the market and they can barely survive. And they're, you know, some of them are in their sixties and they're still renting and are getting priced out. So it is, it is a very serious issue has been for a long time. Regulation has not come in probably, you know, it's kind of late basically. Right. Um, and, and we got to remember that the, the Fed was subsidizing housing until this year, until March. So um, keeping interest rates low, which could, which drove, you know, prices up. So this article is, again, it's basically saying 
we've got to stop Wall Street landlords, even though they only represented 3% of home sales. <laughs> um, and, and that would be uh, funds that own 100 homes or more. Uh, between 2021 and 2022, it was only 3%. So they, they're not as bad as people think. They own about a little over 1% of rental properties that are out there. But in certain markets, they're really active. And it's in those markets, and I'll, I'll mention some of them, Atlanta, Jacksonville, Charlotte, Phoenix, Miami. In those markets, they, they have made it really hard for homeowners to get in. Uh, so with this act, I kind of like, I, I like the proposal in the sense that they're basically saying, maybe we don't give the investors the same tax deductions that a homeowner would get. Um, maybe there's a transfer tax or there's a different kind of tax if you're an institutional investor. Uh, they also recognize that really the real issue is supply and that maybe, maybe the better regulation or incentive would be tax credits this to me is like super obvious, like, of course, tax credits to people who will bring in affordable housing. Because anytime you give any kind of tax incentive, that's where the money goes. So I, I do think it's a somewhat balanced proposal. I didn't read the whole thing. And the article just kind of talks about it or may, may or may not go through. Uh, but I do know that other countries charge more to an investor than a homeowner in taxes. Uh, you know, there's the, the property tax is going to be higher. There's going to be potentially a transfer tax. So this isn't something new or unusual. And I, I don't see that as a bad thing at all um, to now. And you're talking about I'm a fund manager, right? Like this would not be good for me. Uh, we we have a fund. We're buying we're, we're buying aggressively. I just got back from Dallas and we we just tied up, you know, homes for about 120,000 that don't need. Well, they probably need 20 to 30,000 in rehab and and the ARV is going to be about 220 for our for our fund at Grow Developments. And I can tell you from a fund manager perspective, there a a a first time buyer wouldn't want that home. Mm. You guys know that we're you know we fix homes. You know to put a first time home buyer who's barely able to afford the home to begin with, maybe doing a three percent down FHA loan. Now they got a house that it is barely livable. Yep. You know, so investors are needed, and I, I think that voice has to be out there too. That um, investors like me come in, take these old houses up and pick them up. We have the capital because we're raising that capital to buy it, fix it, and make it a really nice, clean, safe place for a rental. And there are people who need that rental. And you need to be incentivized. And you need to be incentivized. So if we were taxed too much, and if there were too high a transfer taxes, we probably wouldn't do it because quite honestly, a single family rental fund, there's not a huge spread there anyway. You know, it's not, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40% returns that you're seeing, you know, well, I don't know if you're seeing that anywhere, but flippers are going to make more money. The buy and hold investor funds there, you know, the margins are pretty thin. So if you want companies like mine, mine's definitely smaller than the, the, these big ones, you know, there does have to be incentive to, to pr be able to create this clean, safe housing and uh, housing gets old. You know, somebody, somebody was saying, you know, the earth likes to eat housing. If you, if you leave a house for very long, it will fall into the ground and mother nature will eat it, right? It's, it, it will after, after 20, 30, 40 years, those, those homes don't do so well. They need constant investment. 27.5, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. so, Appreciation. <laughs> so it's an interesting article. I would, I would definitely read it and check it out. Um, one other thing I do agree with is that the you shouldn't be subsidizing the investor if it's not needed. 
like like I said, okay, subsidize the investor for for trying to bring on affordable housing. I think I got I told you guys in our Park City project we had to bring in thirty percent affordable, and I were super happy to do it. But when costs went up and it costs twice the price to build that house, they're not letting us sell it for more because it has to stay in the affordable. So we're losing about four hundred thousand dollars per property of what it's costing us to build this affordable housing. Why should I have to do that? That seems like it should be a they're a government incentive for that because it's hurting our investors too. If prices go up, we have to eat that. I think that's a really good point and agree with a lot of what you're saying, but you just to extrapolate that and how this has an impact on in the long term, if you know, the requirement that developers have affordable housing makes sense to a lot of people, myself included, at on you know, at, at the surface level. But then you have to think about you're in this conundrum now and unfortunately you're losing money, your investors are gonna be hurt by this. It means that you are probably less likely to do something like this in the future. And right. so it has this way of even though the government is trying to create more affordable housing, if it's not done in a tactful way there, where there's some flexibility and to James's point where you're actually like working together as partners to make something actually work long term, it could actually have some of the adverse effects and sort of the opposite of what is intended. I, I could not agree more. I mean, we will never do this again because who could have predicted COVID? You know, who could have, the government's telling us we can't send our workers to work, yet we're still paying the overhead and then costs go up double and we go to the county and say, I mean, you told us we could only sell these homes for $350,000. They're costing us 800,000 to build. Can we, is there any flexibility? And the answer is no, they won't do it. The only answer is don't build it. Yeah. It's just like, all right. Yeah. Okay, here. This turns into a parking lot at this point. So it's. And that's not going to help the firefighters and teachers that need that. And then we're charging rent for parking. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You know, one thing I want to mention is when I read these articles or hear this about these hedge funds that have bought a lot of homes and and I sold, I've sold a lot of hedge funds properties. And these, this, these hedge funds did not take inventory from the first time home buyer. They did not take inventory from any home buyer. And uh, especially with like a low down home buyer, because they needed so much work, they're creating inventory. It's de- it's their their carcasses, right? They're homes that are not livable. They're they require capital to fix them, and no homeowner is going to go. I mean, the government needs to if, if that's what they want to do, then they need to come in with some construction teams and some zero down programs and some construction financing, and then you government fix the properties. Yeah, because. It, it's not inventory. It, the inventory is not leaving because it was never inventory. Good point. It's being created by these investment companies, and and everyone's complaining about them eating up all the product right now. Or over the last two years, we needed those buyers in two thousand eight, nine, ten, eleven. The inventory was massive, and it was unconsumable at the time. And the only reason it got consumed up is because these big funds came into the markets and they bought the dirtiest of the dirt. And they restored these properties. And, and we don't know what would have happened to that market and how long we would have been bottomed out if it wasn't for these companies. So there's always give and takes at both times. But I mean, it's, I think it's short sighted because they're creating inventory and housing. It's a matter of how do we control the cost. And, and that's just policy at that point. Yeah, I'm curious what you guys think because one of the comments made in this article was um, at, at a minimum, Investors shouldn't be subsidized for rental housing. And what I mean by that is a lot of these big funds got Fannie and Freddie backed low interest rate loans. These are government loans. Fannie and Freddie were created to help people, individuals, low income individuals 
buy homes. That's that's why we have government-backed loans. So why were these hedge funds getting those? So I, I can agree, you know, again, I love what Henry said. Let's work together towards a common goal. Uh, I think, you know, I think nobody wants families living in their cars unless they get unless they want to. Like I said, my nephews make good money and they love living in their van. So again, unless they want to. All right. Well, this is this is a great conversation, everyone. Thank you. It's an important topic and probably one that's going to come up more uh, in the, in the near future. So I'll definitely be reading up more on this. So thank you, Jamil and Kathy, for for sharing these stories with us. All right, let's move on to uh, a different uh, conversation about the housing market. Henry, it sounds like you brought a, a different type of story for us. What do you got? Yeah, I like I like this article because it's essentially the article itself kind of mirrors what's happening in real life, right? So the 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 headline is uh, economists say a U.S. housing recession has already arrived. It's already here. Right. And what they're saying is that the housing market index is basically telling us that it's declined to 33 and anything under 50 spells trouble. Um, so because the scale is to, it's on a, it's on a hundred point scale. So um, and so what they're saying is based on this housing market index that um, the housing Martian, the housing market is already in recession. It's been in a recession since midsummer, um, but this, and the index has declined for 11 straight months. So the article itself is a, a scary headline. But at the end of the day, this index was based on what home builders are saying. And the market for a home builder has been different than the market for a traditional investor or the market for a, a, a first-time home buyer, somebody who's not looking to buy to invest, but to buy to live. And it then goes on to talk about, well, the interest rates are high and the same home now is going to cost you $1,000 more a month than it was uh, three months ago, which is very true. But then it also goes to say, well, interest rates passed 7%, but they've come back down a little bit to around 6.3% this month. And so this article in itself feels like a roller coaster ride. Like when I read the article, I'm not quite sure how to feel. I just feel like I'm going up and down. So like, this is good and this is bad and this is good and this is bad. And it's such a reflection of what the first time investor, the new investor, the first time home buyer is all feeling right now. Cause they're like, do I get in? No, I don't get in. This is high. I do buy. And what I want people to understand is that we can really only make decisions right now based on what we currently know. But what I know as an investor is that the the real estate market is a cycle right there there's going to be a time to get in when prices are really low like right now you're able to negotiate a lower price and that goes for the first time home buyer and the investor because there are less buyers than there were a few months ago right so that gives you an opportunity to buy at a lower cost but there's also going to be a time in the market where the prices are high but maybe the cost to borrow the money is lower, meaning that A, you can afford more and B, um, and, and so it's easier for you to get in there and, and to buy something and be able to afford a home maybe at a higher price. And so what's important is understanding what the market is giving you right now. I think I've used this analogy before, but in sports, they say you take what the defense gives you, right? There's always going to be an opportunity, no matter what 
type of market cycle that we are in. If you look at what's currently happening right now, I want people to be able to focus on, okay, what is this market giving me as an opportunity? And is that opportunity something that fits my financial goals? If your financial goal is to buy property and hold it for the long term so that you're creating cash flow and building wealth through equity, it's a phenomenal time to buy a property at a discount. Yes, the money costs more, but you're getting a deeper discount. So it somewhat offsets itself depending on the discount, right? So if that's your strategy, it's great. If your strategy is to trade, to buy a property, fix it up, and then sell it in a short period of time, the market isn't really giving you that if you're inexperienced, right? If you're experienced and you have processes and systems in place to help you find those discounted properties, to help you get them renovated very quickly and back on the market and sold very quickly, then you can probably do that strategy. But if you're just a normal investor doing this first, second, third, fourth, fifth deal, trading isn't as easy right now. It's better for a more experienced investor. So you just have to understand what is the market telling me right now that is an opportunity and does that opportunity fit my financial goals? I could not agree more, Henry. That is That was su- such good points. As you know, I just got back from Phoenix and there was the IMN Single Family Rental Conference. It's their 10th year and you had all kinds of uh, buy and hold investors there. In the opening session, they gave these really good stats from John Burns that I just want to share that supports what you said. Um, they said that there's right now there's a 57% decline in iBuyers. So if iBuyers were bugging you, there's 57% less. I mean, that's huge in itself. Um, there's a 27% decline in purchases from the funds that are the big ones, 100 homes or more. And what was super interesting, and they said they didn't really know why, but they think they know why. But in the in the nine, like kind of nine to 100 units, that they have not declined. They're buying. And um, and and then the newbies, there's a 22% decline because maybe they don't have the experience, like you said, and aren't sure how to get the deals. So the interpretation was these big funds, these big investors, they're kind of struggling right now because a lot of them pivoted into building new home to, um, you know, uh, build to rent, huge developments mm-hmm. of new homes. And the terms have changed, right? Their their construction costs have gone up, as I know. And as you guys know, their cost to borrow has gone up and then the end financing has gone up. So uh, their, their plans are not working out as, as expected. So there's expected to be quite a bit of fallout in that regard. Um, and then those who would buy scattered lots like we're doing or scattered homes, just buying homes and basically a Burr fund model, buying, fixing, getting our money back and doing it again in the fund, um, that takes, you have to be nimble. You have to really know your market. You have to be a really expert investor. You can't be a white gloved Wall Street investor and do that, right? So this is the time. I can't emphasize enough what Henry just said, that this is the time for us. You know, for the people that can be nimble and can go in there and buy what nobody else wants and fix it up and still keep it affordable for somebody and and provide safe, affordable housing, this this is our turn. It's our game. The big players are out because they don't know how to manage a game like that. 
Yeah, the the big guys have they can't adjust, and that's the you know when you when they move too slow. They move too slow. Their staff is too heavy, and I mean, and even us, and we're not big by any means compared to funds. But like as you grow your businesses out, we we've had as the market has transitioned, we've had to shrink this back and get nimble. We can't have the more bodies you have and the more people you have doesn't mean it's more efficient. It just means it kind of gets more process oriented. But that doesn't mean that your processes are, like you said, nimble, where you got to cut cost. Flipping homes is not an easy thing. It is not something you, you can build a home a lot easier than you can flip a house. Right. You, but you, with building home, you get plans. You're working with professional subcontractors. They bid the plans. And then you can schedule it accordingly. These old homes you rip, you rip into, and all of a sudden you got rotted walls, things falling, you got de- dead bodies, and who knows what happens inside <laughs> these walls. And you have to be able to pivot. Dead bodies everywhere. Only in the <laughs> Pacific Northwest, by the way, guys. Just, yeah. <laughs> things happen, right? And the and and that's what happens is they can't adjust, and, and that's you know it's, and then that's where I, I I do think we might see a graveyard of investment property coming up. It, I, I keep coming back to that because if you can't adjust and you can't control your costs, if you're 10% off on your construction, your values, and your hold times, that turns into a big number if it's a large property. And um, you have to be able to adjust and adapt. I know I've switched all my businesses to where we are way more nimble, way smaller, way more ninja, get in, get out. Like on whatever whatever business it is, we're getting in and out. And, and, and you you have to do that by being nimble. What's interesting is, you know, from my company, Keegley, we're, uh, you know, a national wholesaler. So I get to see what this looks like from the investor standpoint and, you know, what the volume of trades are happening and how much demand is there. Now, what's funny is that a lot of my competitors, when the big funds were buying uh, a lot of homes, the iBuyers, the, uh, you know, the institutions that have 100 or more homes were buying, most of my competition focused right on them. They said, oh, these little mom and pop investors that are buying hold guys, fixing flippers, they're not paying us enough. They're not, they're not closing fast enough. They're not overpaying. So let's just focus on these institutions. And they, and they fail to create relationships or maintain relationships with the small mom and pop guy. Our business model never shifted. We stayed with the small mom and pop guy all the way through. Right now, when you look at our volume of trading, I'm looking at wholesalers and there's a graveyard of wholesalers out there because they all screwed up shifting their business to the funds where we stayed with the mon pa guy. And our volume, although we did take a dip, we had a couple of months where things were a little bit, we had to pivot and understand, but again, being nimble and being able to adjust, our volumes have picked right up and we're crushing it. And so you can see that this demand that, you know, you guys are talking about where it's when Kathy says it's our time, it is our time. And the people who are in the know who understand it, they're getting in and they're making it happen. All right. Well, great conversation. This has been really fascinating. Thank you for bringing that, Henry. James, what did you bring for us? Um, so I thought I, I pulled an article because I think it's important to kind of look at these types of uh, clickbaity uh, articles. But it says uh, from Fortune price decline, seven forecast models are leaning towards crash. Uh, Here's uh, here's what the other 13 models of the 2023 market are going. Uh, The reason I do like the article is it it gives you a good perspective from all different kind of sectors. It's talking about, you know, like Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, they're giving their predictions. There's Moody Analytics in there with John Burns. They have their predictions. And then you have the Zillows and the Redfins are all in there too. And in this article, you can click through 
through each one and read their perspective and how they came up with the analytics. Um, the one thing I don't like about it is this clickbait, right? People are trying to get people to download stuff, 20% drop, that's fear. If you really read through the whole article, there's only two people that even reference that number. Most of them are substantially lower in the 5 to 10% range uh, on, on the decline. Can I guess who the 20% are? Yeah. Wh- who do you think? Ivy Zellman. Uh, no, that wasn't one of them. Ivy Zellman and Moody's Analytics. Actually, no, no. Moody, uh, Moody was not. Uh, John Burns was the most negative. Oh. 22% actually. Mm, yeah, they're, they're pretty bearish. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Moody was around 10%. John Burns is a smart guy. Yes. And he's usually right. I know. Yeah, yeah. You might want to take that one seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I might agree with him because there's this one stat that just like, I sometimes I got to remember like common sense, right? Like we, we, there's all this data out there. There's all these opinions, like Henry was saying too, this roller coaster of a ride but sometimes it just comes down to straight common sense. Like it's, and, and it says uh, 20% peak through drop. So home prices will be back to October tw- uh, 21 levels with a 10% drop. They'll be at a 20% drop. We'll still be at 2021 levels in the late February. So it's all about that massive run. And so it's like most of the gains were done in 2021 or a big chunk of them. And so, it, you know, what the article is really referencing is we're not going into 2008 because they don't think that there's going to be this mortgage crisis and all these things going on with the economy. Uh, they just think everything's deflating backwards. And right now, that and I, I firmly believe that. I don't think we're going into a tailspin of 2008. 2008 was the doors, the lights went out, and we were all sitting in the dark for like a year going, how do we get this back on? This is just going to be deflating things down, and it is going to hurt a little bit on the way on the door from stuff that you bought in 2021 or in late, to, or, you know, or 22. And, but it, it will get better. Right. And you just have to kind of adjust. And, and the reason I like digging into all these stats and all these predictions is we're building this into our underwriting. We can still buy very safely if we're not if we're just you know, if we're predicting I, there's nothing wrong with predicting the market might go down a little bit. But you have to do it in an intelligent way because I'm an active investor. I can't get spooked. That's unrealistic. Like a lot of the 20 percent drop, I think a, a bit, we've already seen a lot of that drop. And I think that we're probably like another 5% skid from where we are because we've already seen this 10 I know in Seattle, I've seen 20%. And that's just what it's been. And but, but it allows me to continue to purchase. I can build that into my analytics. As I'm underwriting, I'm looking at things. I'm going, okay, if I think the market's still a little bit risky, I'm just not pushing the values. There's nothing wrong with that. And you can still get those buys and close the deals. And I think it's really important that investors establish what they think personally what i think is going to be different than henry kathy and jamil we're going to buy differently we're going to do our businesses differently but we are doing the right research off all our experience and we're building that into what we're doing in our specific market because jamil's in phoenix i'm in seattle these are different markets we're also doing different things and so you have to really narrow down to what do you want to do in this transitionary market then research that information and you can protect yourself. There's a lot of really good buys right now. And I, and I'm, I, I don't really mind these articles because it does spook people. We are buying a lot. We've bought more property and it's been way different type of property, but we've bought more volume of property in the last 90 days than we did in the first six months of the year. And it's completely different product, but the opportunities are out there. Just really, you have to, as an investor, listen to 
everyone, but then it, it, you got to kind of interpret it and, and really figure out what you want to go with. You know, like one of them is Redfin was, or I think it was Zillow was pr- predicting a, a 0.1 drop. And so based on what I know about the iBuyers, I, 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 I go the opposite direction or whatever they're recommending. If they're saying 1%, I'm thinking it's 5 to 6%. But, uh, you know, I think it's just really important that people kind of interpret this information and then build it into your own day-to-day practice into your market because every market is different. Every different thing you're doing is changing. And so just because housing could drop 20%, that might not be affect you at all. So just really pay attention to these these news headlines and dig in. Don't just pay attention to the, the the scary clickbait. Yeah, I mean, when it comes down to forecasting, I feel like there's basically two things you should be considering when you read this stuff. First is what's the business model of the people forecasting? Like, are you Zillow or Redfin or the Mortgage Bankers Association? Because you probably have a vested interest in predicting things one way. But I think there's a lot of really good, like reputable forecasts out there. And to me, it all just hinges on mortgage rates. Like if you think mortgage rates are going to be stay above 7%, prices could fall 20%. I don't personally believe mortgage rates are going to stay that high. And so I think it, there's a different group of people who are saying mortgage rates are going to be, you know, in the high fives, low sixes next year. And then you're probably seeing single digit declines. Um, I'm personally in that camp. Um, we've, we've all probably talked about this at length, but I think that's a lot of why you see these like differentiating things. Cause if, if mortgage rates stay high or go like seven to 8%, like there is going to be a crash uh, in my opinion, like 20%. But you know, we've already seen mortgage rates come down to 6.3%. Uh, bond yields continue to fall. Like if they, if they stay where they are right now, bond, mortgage rates will be in the fives next year. So like, I think, um, those are just things that you should keep an eye on. If you want to understand who's correct here, just look at, mortgage rates. And the higher they go, the higher chance of uh, a crash. Any last thoughts, Jamil, Henry, Kathy? Just just last thoughts from IMN were that renting is 30% more affordable in most places than owning the same home. So the fundamentals are really strong for being a landlord right now. Yep. Awesome. I like that tidbit. Put that on Instagram. All right. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, We appreciate it. Uh, Had a lot of fun. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. If you are listening to this, we always appreciate a great review or sharing this content. If you also think this was one of the best shows of the year, tell everyone you know on Instagram or just in the street. Tell everyone you know that this was the best (laughs) episode and that they should go listen to it. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time for On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. 
And all this, what I'm describing here is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming small multifamily bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, Head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the small multifamily bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.